Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> Luke chapter 10 is the story of where Jesus sends out the uh, 70. In uh, Luke 9, it tells us about how that he uh, sent out the 12 apostles and he gave them power over uh, sickness and disease. doesn't say that he did the same thing with the 70, but we know that he, that, uh, he must have because of some things that he told them. He told them uh, uh, to whatsoever city they entered into, if the city would receive them, eat such things as were set before you, verse 9, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Well, they wouldn't very well be able to heal the sick if they didn't have authority over sickness and disease. So they come back, verse 17, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, there's no mention in the previous verses uh, when Jesus commissions and sends them out that he said anything to them about casting out devils or authority over the devil in any way whatsoever, uh, other than what we understand that he must have given them authority over sickness and disease, as we said before. But they come back and say, Lord, even the devils are subjects unto us through thy name. So they must have used the name of Jesus to set people free from uh, the oppression of the devil. And he said unto them, Jesus responds and said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He's not talking about it at that point in time. He's talking about the fact that since Satan rebelled against God and he was cast into the earth, he's a defeated foe. In other words, Jesus doesn't make too big a deal out of having authority over the devil. Now that sounds strange to us, I'm sure, because we make a real big deal about it. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't make a big deal about it. But Jesus has something else in mind. He said, I beheld Satan's lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power, or literally the word authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. This is a different word, power. It means ability of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. And notice verse 20. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, Jesus seems to be saying that authority over the devil is a byproduct of your relationship with God. It shouldn't be the main focus. He discourages them from making it the main focus. And that's probably a good thing because we all have a tendency to do that. We talk about authority over the devil and anytime we mention anything related to authority over the devil and automatically we, we uh, think about situations and circumstances that we read in the Gospels where Jesus addressed the devil, sent him packing, calmed the storms and all that kind of stuff. And if those things weren't important, Jesus wouldn't have done them when he was here. But what's more important is to recognize your relationship with God. To recognize the authority that we have over the devil is a result of the relationship we have with God. Notice he said, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now what does that mean to them? Well, it can't be talking about salvation because that hadn't been accomplished yet. Jesus hadn't been to the cross. He hadn't shed his blood, which is the only way that salvation comes. God's redemptive plan of salvation cannot come without the blood of Jesus. So when he says rejoice that your names are written in heaven, he's got to be talking about a promise of salvation. Again, he's talking about relationship with God. Notice the next verse, verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. 
Again, he's talking about relationship. He rejoices over something that's been made known through the work of the 70. He rejoices because it is shown through the authority that has been exercised by the 70 over the devil, over evil spirits and also over sickness and disease. And Jesus rejoices in that because it points to relationship. It points to our Heavenly Father and us becoming sons of God through the new birth, of course. But Jesus didn't finish yet. Notice something else. I think it's interesting that he rejoices because these things are made known, which indicates that God really wants us to know. But notice verse 23. And he turned him to his disciples and said privately. In other words, he gathers up a little huddle of them. So there's got to be a lot more other people there. There's got to be other people there if Jesus is talking privately to his disciples and he does it kind of secretly or comes up with a football huddle or something like that in the middle of the crowd. So he can say to his disciples, he said privately to them, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. Now again, he's got to, unless we're going to take this out of context and, and, and insert by speculation another topic in here, He's still talking about authority over the devil through relationship with God. I haven't seen him change gears, have you? The text doesn't indicate that he starts another subject or topic. So he said to his disciples privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see, again, authority through relationship, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them that's what turned Jesus on that's what got him excited that's what he rejoiced about according to the scriptures he rejoiced because man found in spite of his sin in spite of the sin nature in spite of the terrible things that he'd done which at this point as I said before haven't even been paid for they've got a promissory note on it they've got a promise of salvation to come but they haven't obtained it yet at this point and the thing that Jesus got excited about the thing that he rejoiced about was that man started finding out his authority through his relationship with God turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 Matthew chapter 7 is the tail end or the ending of the sermon on the mount starts in chapter 5 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 7 Jesus has spoken a lot of things about character and the nature of God and so forth Revealed a lot of things to those that were gathered, the multitudes that were gathered about God and about how he operates and who he is and so forth. Beginning in verse 24, he said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Verse 28, and it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. I know we make a big deal about this, folks, but I believe this is a big deal. They were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine just seems, simply means teaching. 
They were astonished at his teaching. Notice they weren't astonished at him. Now, you may remember one of the times that Jesus uh, calmed the seas. He told his disciples, let's go to the other side. He laid down in the back end of the boat and went to sleep, and a, a storm of wind came up, and waves were crashing over in, and into the ship where they were and so forth. And they asked Jesus if he didn't want to wake up while they all died. He said, Master, wake, wake up. We are all perishing. Well, it wouldn't do for Jesus to sleep through the, the boat going down, would it? Jesus stood up and calmed the sea. He said, peace be still. And there was a great calm, the scripture says. And the disciples were astonished, saying, who is a man? Who is this man that the winds and the waves even obey? Now, folks, the reason I point that story out is because I want you to see the difference between that one, where the disciples were astonished at him and the power that he exercised versus what it says here. They weren't astonished at Jesus. They were astonished at his teaching. They, weren't, they didn't come away from that place saying, wow, Jesus really is the miracle worker that we've heard about. Look at all the power that Jesus is exercising. That's not why they're astonished. They're astonished at what Jesus taught. Verse 29 gives us a hint as to what that was. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Notice the word one is in italics. It literally says, literally reads this way. The translators put it in there to help us understand. And, and we have to assume that it's according to their understanding. They thought that Jesus drew attention to himself. And so they put something in this verse that wasn't originally there. They added a word in here to point to Jesus instead of the teaching, which the scripture is trying to get us to realize. He taught them as one having authority, literally as having authority. He taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. The phrase or the two words as having can be defined. Look it up in Strong's Concordance for yourself. It can be defined as how to hold. They were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them how to hold authority. Or we might say it this way, how to exercise authority, how to use authority. They were fascinated at Jesus because Jesus was teaching that man has authority on the earth. That was new. Well, if man has authority on the earth, how come Jesus is the only one until he commissions the 10 and, and then sends out the 70 or the 12 and the 70? How come Jesus is the only one exercising authority? Because he's the only one that has a relationship with God. He's the only one in a position to hold and to use and to exercise that authority because of the work God has sent him to do. And notice what it all comes down to. We started in verse 24, being a doer of the word. Same storms come for the doers and the hearers only. It's not a matter of the storm. It's not a matter of how big the storm is or how violent the storm is or how severe the storm is. The issue is, what foundation is your life built on? The only one that will last all the storms of life is the foundation of the Word of God. I was, uh, turn back with me to Jonah chapter 2. I was meditating on some things the other day, and I really, really liked the, uh, the story of Jonah. You remember how that God had spoken to him, had uh, commissioned him, told him to go to Nineveh and preach. Because if Nineveh did not repent, within a short period of time, they would be destroyed. The city would be destroyed. Well, Jonah didn't like the Ninevites. He didn't want them to repent. And he was concerned that they would. 
he knew how God operated, and he thought that if the, that the Ninevites would recognize God's desire for them not to be destroyed, and so they, he expected that they would repent and destruction wouldn't come on them. And he didn't want that. He wanted them to be destroyed. So he goes the other way. He gets on board a ship and goes the other way. You remember how the storm arose? And they finally figured out this is a supernatural thing. This is not a normal um, bad sailing day. And so they start trying to find out who's the cause of this. We've angered the gods, so to speak. Who's the cause of this? And Jonah finally says, hey, it's me, guys. Your only hope for salvation, your only hope to be saved from this storm is to throw me over. Well, they didn't want to do that because they thought that might anger. I mean, any God that cared about somebody to create that much trouble with something surrounding him, they thought they might anger God by throwing him into the sea. But finally they did. And the Bible says right at the end of the first chapter, the Bible tells us that as soon as they threw Jonah into the sea, the storm stopped. The seas got calm. The wind ceased. And then they really got afraid. They started making vows unto God at that point, the scripture says. But then the, it tells us that God had prepared a great fish to, to swallow Jonah. And so Jonah is now in the belly of the fish in chapter 2. And he says a lot of things that, um, uh, he, well, he says some things that relate to his experience when he talks about the weeds wrapped around his head and that kind of stuff. And I can't imagine that it's anything but close quarters. I, I don't, I've never seen a, a, a fish or a whale or anything as large as uh, the largest fish that we know of, which I guess is a whale. I've never seen anything show that their insides, their stomach, their digestive system or anything like that has a lot of room. So I'm imagining Jonah is really in cramped quarters. He's in some serious, serious conditions of his environment. But then he starts speaking some things. I particularly like the, uh, the eighth verse. He said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. He's calling his circumstance a lying vanity. Now let's back up a minute. We know that Jonah knows what the word of God is, is that's been spoken to him. He knows what God has commanded him to do. Go to Nineveh. He knows that all the trouble arises because he disobeys what God tells him to do. But he also knows that God doesn't change things just because we hesitate or rebel or get detoured or anything else. Jonah still knows God's plan is for him to go to Nineveh. Now, I would assume or expect that most of us in the belly of the fish would say, we're goners. We're done for. Nothing left to be done but be digested by the fish. But God's plan for Jonah hadn't changed. Folks, if you get in a situation where you look like you're too far away from God to get back, you may just be in the belly of the fish. God's plan hadn't changed. God's plan for you hadn't changed. His purpose for you hasn't changed. Even if you've been delayed or detoured or run away from, from him and from what he wants you to do for a long time, he doesn't change. Well, Jonah knows this. So he said, they that observe lying vanities... The conditions of him inside the fish, he calls a lying vanity. Well, what's it a lying vanity toward or from? What is it a lie about? It's a lie against what God had told him he wanted him to do. It's a lie that 
to consider or to think that those circumstances would stop God's original plan and purpose from being fulfilled. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But the Lord led me to verse 9. When I was meditating on this the other day, the Lord led me to verse 9. He said, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Now, as I said, at the end of chapter 1, when Jonah is thrown overboard and the, the seas calm and the wind stops and everything immediately ceases, they made some vows to God. But we don't know where Jonah made his. We don't know where Jonah finally said, okay, God, I'll go to Nineveh. I realize how important it is. I was in the wrong. Forgive me. Now I'm ready to obey you. But that's got to be what he's talking about. I will pay that which I have vowed. I'll make good on my promise to you, Lord. But the last phrase is what the Lord really dropped my attention to. Salvation is of the Lord. He's still looking for salvation. He's looking for deliverance. We would expect that as soon as the fish swallowed him, that's the end of the story. Somewhere God might have said to Jonah, by the way, I already had somebody in reserve take up the slack where you, uh, where you disobeyed. But Jonah's looking for salvation. He's looking for deliverance. Now, this word salvation from the Hebrew means deliverance, aid, victory, prosperity, health, saving health, and welfare. It's used 78 times in the Old Testament. 78 times. But it's the Hebrew word Yeshua. Which is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word that we use for Jesus. Yeshua is of the Lord. The word Lord is the word Jehovah. The word Jehovah is always used when it's talking about God's power. Where it talks about God said in the creation of the earth and God moved his hand to perform some mighty work. That's always the word Jehovah. There's another word that's used for, for, God, or El, uh, for uh, God or Lord and it's the word Elohim. And that word is used when it's talking about relationship. God's word or God's relationship with mankind. It's used a lot when God appeared unto Abram. And talk to him about making a covenant and so forth. So the power word or name for God is Jehovah. The relationship word is Elohim. Elohim is what's used in uh, um, Genesis 1.26. When God made man. And God said let us make man in, in our own image. And let him have authority on the earth. That's the, the name Elohim. As I said, this word salvation, Yeshua, is used 78 times in the Old Testament. It's, it's translated most of, the, uh, most of the definitions in some place or another about victory and prosperity and health and so forth. But let me show you a couple of them that, uh, that you might be familiar with. Exodus chapter 14 tells us about how God has led uh, Israel out of Egypt. They've been released by Pharaoh, but now they're backed up against the Red Sea. Mountains on either side. And Pharaoh finds, sees that they're in a predicament. And so he decides to take his armies, his chariots and soldiers and so forth, and, and destroy them once and for all. Moses says, Exodus 14, 13, Moses said unto the people, 
Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation, Yeshua, of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And then the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they may go forward. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Now the point that I want you to see here, folks, is that Moses says, literally says, and this would be an accurate translation. It wouldn't make much sense as far as the language is concerned, on, uh, uh, at least from a grammatical standpoint, the way we think about the English language. But he literally says, stand still and see Jesus. Stand still and see Jesus. And then God says to Moses, what are you waiting for me for? You're the one that's going to separate the waters, divide the waters. So you can go on dry ground. Just lift up your hand. Lift up your rod over the sea. Stand still and see Jesus. And use the authority that's given to you. Let me show you another case. Over in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You remember the story of when uh, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. And five enemy armies come out against them. Jehoshaphat proclaims a fast. And they prayed and they said, Lord, we don't know what to do. There's a... a collection of armies an alliance of enemies arrayed against us that are much stronger than we are and there's nothing that we know to do and during that time or as a result of that it tells us that the spirit of the Lord came upon Zechariah gives us his lineage and he said hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou King Jehoshaphat thus saith the Lord unto you be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude for the battle is not yours but God's Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, you'll, they'll come up by the cliff of Ziz. And you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Verse 17. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves. Stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still. Set yourself and see Jesus. O Jerusalem, O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Now, you remember what they did. It tells us everybody rejoiced, and they got up the next morning, and Jehoshaphat appointed singers and praisers to go out in front of the, the army. And the Bible says that he commissioned them to, to sing as they went out, for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. And the Bible says that when they began to sing and to praise God, the Lord said ambushments. Isn't that exactly what, what Jonah did? He said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will speak with a voice of thanksgiving unto you. I will pay that which I have vowed, for salvation is of the Lord. That's what these guys did. The Bible tells us even in Exodus chapter 15, it talks about the songs that they sang after the battle was over. They didn't sing before, but there was a lot of rejoicing associated with their situation too. But here in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, it says, when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments. And they rose up against each other and destroyed themselves. 
There are several other translations, a lot of other uh, places, not translations, but verses, where this uh, word salvation, this word Yeshua is used. One of them that you may be familiar with is in uh, Psalm 91, the last verse of the chapter. It says, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's the word Yeshua. With long life I will satisfy him and show him Jesus. Now, folks, these are, these are um, specifically, some of these are verses that I've been meditating on, and um, some of them have even been things that the Lord has spoken to me. You know, it's one thing when you speak the word to God, but it's another thing when he speaks it back to you. It becomes personal when he speaks it back to you. We can take hold of it by faith and should. But when he speaks them back to you, then they become alive. There's something about it. It becomes more than just a word on a page. So during this uh, time when I was meditating and the Lord brought my attention to the word salvation in Jonah chapter 2, it just jumped in my heart the number of times it talks about stand still and see Jesus. Stand still and see Jesus. The phrase the rock of my salvation is used a lot in the Old Testament. That word salvation is the word Yeshua. It's talking about Jesus being the rock that we build our house upon. He is the word made flesh. It all comes back to the same thing. It's like we're going in a circle. And it's a wonderful circle because it's the circle of life. Not the Disney circle of life, but the real thing. Let me show you another example. Isaiah chapter 12. I'll start in verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. Same word, Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. I guess the point that I'm, I need to make sure to make is that the name of Jesus is something that's very precious to us. And I know there's a lot of people out there that, that will argue about the name Yeshua versus Jesus and say it doesn't really work and doesn't have any power unless you use the Hebrew term and not the Greek term that's uh, built on phonetics rather than the, the Hebrew that God gave us or gave them. And I'm, I'm not trying to, I, I think those arguments are just stupid. I know there's a, there's a person in our church not too long ago that there was somebody at their work that was a very devout, religious type person. And he got caught up in this uh, Yeshua business. And so he started trying to convince the person that uh, his coworker, our church congregant, person that went here, that they're not saved unless you use the word Yeshua. And through the, the course of the conversation, they had told me about how he had just gotten a hold of this teaching and he was so turned on about it and it changed his life and all this kind of stuff. But then when he posed to them or tried to make to them the point that you're not saved unless you use the word Yeshua instead of Jesus, I laughed and asked them, I suggested that they ask, what did he get saved on? Because if he's been saved for any length of time, which he had indicated that he was, but he's just found out this truth that he didn't get saved when he called on the name of Jesus himself. Well, apparently he hadn't thought about that. And so that kind of ended the conversation. But there's a lot of goofy things out there. And I'm not, 
I'm not trying to be a proponent of any of that. But when I realized how many times the Bible talks about salvation, we know what salvation is, or at least we know what a part of it is. Most people boil it down to um, just forgiveness of sins, which really isn't God's plan of redemption. Forgiveness of sins is not the point. Redemption is the remission of sins. It's the doing away with sins. Forgiveness is just excusing. But if you excuse sin, it's still there unless it's remitted. So every time I've seen in these, these verses of Scripture, I'm looking at them a whole, in a whole new light, a whole different light. Stand still and see Jesus. Stand still and see Jesus. With long life, he will satisfy us and show us Jesus. Isaiah chapter 12, again, let me finish. Jehovah, the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Notice verse 3. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. This word is Yeshua. Now, that's what Jonah did. He said, I will lift up my voice in thanksgiving. That's what Jehoshaphat and the children of Israel did when they began to sing and to praise the Lord said ambushments. Now Isaiah is saying that you draw, well, draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus talked about this, that the woman with the issue, uh, I'm sorry, the woman at the well of Samaria, Jesus talked to her about the well of water springing up into everlasting life. He's talking about salvation. Well, she's thinking naturally, and she says, Give me this water so I don't have to come back to the well and draw. And Jesus is talking about himself. The name of Jesus is salvation, folks. The name of Jesus means deliverance. It means aid. It means help. It means victory. It means deliverance. It means healing. The name of Jesus means all of those things. Salvation, every place it's used, Old Testament and New Testament, every place the word salvation is used, and there are other words that are used here for salvation other than just the word Yeshua. But every place that salvation is used, it's an all-inclusive term. It's, just, it's not just some narrow little thing. It's a broad, encompassing term that means help, victory, power to deliver and rescue, well, whatever your situation is, whatever your situation is, Jesus knew that. This is the reason, I think, at least one big reason, why Jesus was able to go through life not worrying about what he's going to face the next day. He wasn't worried that there might be an occasion to raise the dead and he might not be prepared. He knew the power of God was sufficient for every, every need, every circumstance, every situation. We talked a little bit last week about Jairus, who comes to Jesus and wants him to come heal his daughter. She's lying at the point of death. I would imagine, as a father myself, I would certainly be thinking, let's get there as quick as we can. I mean, you've got Jesus. You expect him to be the help that you need. You believe him to be the, the answer for the sickness that's holding your daughter, your loved one. I'd be wanting to get him to the house as quick as possible. Jesus isn't in any hurry. And when word comes that the daughter has already died, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Fear not, only believe. Because believing for the healing is the same as believing for the bigger miracle of the raising of the dead.
Now, I don't even pretend to have that kind of faith. I'm sure Jairus didn't either. But Jesus knows it's all the same thing. Faith to heal a headache is, or power to heal a headache is power to raise the dead. It's all the same for him. It's all the same as far as God's concerned. So it says, therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. With joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Well, this is this well of water springing up into everlasting life that he told the woman in John 4, the woman at the well of Samaria all about. And when I think about it in these terms, stand still and see Jesus. Stand still and see Jesus. That reminds me of two things. One, it reminds me of what Paul says about the thing that was most important to him. He had put away all the accolades and anything that he might have gained on his own through his study and his um, position with the Jews and so forth. But Paul comes to the place where he says, I count all those things as nothing. The only thing that I'm interested in, the only thing that matters to me is that I might know him. That I might know him. And the fellowship of his sufferings. And the power of his resurrection. In other words, he's saying, all I want is to see Jesus. He started off hearing Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him several other times, as Scripture tells us about. But that's all Paul's ministry ever boiled down to. I just want to see Jesus. I want to see the power that's in his resurrection, because that's Jesus. And he was even willing to partake of the fellowship of his sufferings, talking about persecution. Because he learned even in that he could see Jesus too. The second thing I think about, and again, I believe it's Paul telling us in Hebrews chapter 12. I believe Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. After telling us about the heroes of faith in chapter 11, he starts chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, seeing we are encompassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Folks, our salvation is a complete salvation. Our salvation is a powerful salvation. Our salvation is deliverance and freedom from sickness and disease and from all of the work of the devil. Our salvation is a complete salvation. Stand still and see Jesus. Stand still and see Jesus. I believe this is what Paul is looking at when he's writing to us. He tells us about the heroes of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. What did they do? They stood still and saw Jesus. Is there anything more important than that? Oh, but healing for our physical bodies, that's great. That's a byproduct of seeing Jesus. Financial freedom, that's great. It's a byproduct of seeing Jesus. Stand still and see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you reveal to us. I thank you that your word is alive, Father. One little thing, one little glimpse 
provided by the Holy Ghost changes the way we look at everything. Or at least it can. I thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to see Jesus simply by standing on your word. We join ourselves with those wise men that Jesus spoke about that had built our houses on the rock. The rock of our salvation, the rock being Jesus himself. We thank you, Lord, that you are more than enough. Your, your name, the name that you have given unto us, that which represents you, also defines our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And all the benefits, all the powerful benefits that are made available unto us. We choose to look unto you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the completer, the one that brings to an end the work of the enemy once and for all. We look unto you, Lord. You are our salvation. Your deliverance is ours. Your healing and health is ours. Your aid, your comfort, your victory is ours too. So we choose to stand still. Even as Hebrews chapter 4 says, we which have believed do enter into rest. We've pled our cases, Lord, based upon your word. Now we rest our case. Standing still. Unmovable with the word of God is a foundation to stand upon. Looking to see Jesus. We love you, Father. We thank you for all that you've done for us. In that most wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we appreciate you being here with us tonight. We hope you're going to be back with us on uh, Easter Sunday this week. Bring somebody with you to church. I promise I won't go long. God bless you. Have a great week.